From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Well, welcome back to another episode of My Capital Idea. This is Michael Williams with the Defenders of Capitalism Project, and we're talking about all things capitalism, free markets, individual rights, the proper role of government. And today we're going to talk about an interesting concept that has sort of been part of the political divide for the last maybe several years, certainly the last couple of election cycles and maybe even the last several decades, uh, the whole idea of globalization, globalists. But first I want to welcome my co-host Mitch Mitch Whitus, say hello, Mitch. Hey, thanks for having me back again, Mike. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate your uh, keeping me on track with this this project. So, globalism. Let's let's dive right into it. Uh, you know, the, it's been interesting because, as I mentioned, the election cycles have sometimes been dealing with this. You know, people in the uh, major political parties have been talking about globalization being the problem, and there certainly has been a lot of press and a lot of news media coverage over the issue of uh, global trade, globalization, and globalists. And, and there's been conspiracy theories, right? I mean, there's been, there's been people out there who are saying there's this big uh, grand conspiracy uh, to take over the world and have you know, the UN be more in charge of, of lots of different countries' economies. So it's a, it's a big issue. And certainly the Trump administration, I think, fed that some. And I think the whole issue with COVID, the pandemic, vaccines, you know, how do we get this virus um, all fed into some of those conspiracies? I know you pay attention to the news. What is your take on this whole issue of globalization right now? I think it's been an issue for decades, like you said. I remember being in high school and there was this big uproar one one day because everybody was discovering how many of their shoes were made in China. And, you know, how disgusting was that, that our shoes are made in China, not here in the good old US of A, right? So globalization as a concept has been around for a while, but we've definitely seen more focus on globalization with the rise of populism here in the US and around the world. We saw it with Trump we saw it with Bernie Sanders. We see it with Elizabeth Warren. And even now in the Biden administration, they've actually decided to keep many of the tariffs that the Trump administration had put into place. So there's been a lot more discussion and people scared that globalization hasn't been good. And not just because of the COVID conspiracy theories, but also because of things that have really happened, like supply chain disruptions inflation, things getting a lot more expensive. People are saying, hey, why don't we just all make it here? Yeah. And we don't have to worry. Where's the benefits of all this global trade when it's getting things are getting worse? But you know, it's it, it's interesting the 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 issue of Trump and Biden and, and different politicians, they all make different noises, but they all end up doing the same things. I mean, to me it's interesting how um the Biden administration really I thought there was I mean I, I didn't have a whole lot of hope for the Biden administration. But I thought, okay, they might be better on free trade. They might be better on some of these tariff issues. And they really haven't been. I mean, that that, that hasn't changed much. And no. neither really has uh, the, the whole issue with regard to immigration either. I mean, um, immigration isn't necessarily directly related to the globalization issue, but it's related. But I find that interesting, that comment that, you know, that Biden hasn't done much different under the Trump tariffs. So... You know, where do we go with this? What what are we talking about here with regard to globalization? Do people who are anti-globalization really have any good argument? What is the basis for the argument? And do they even understand what they mean by globalization? And, and I think it's worth defining our terms a little bit, don't you think? I agree. And I think to really sum up major arguments against globalization, this quote from Laura Ingram's show. She's a Fox News host. I'll You're quote, a big fan, right? Oh, uh, big fan, big fan. So imagine me saying this quote in uh, my best hypocritical Laura Ingram voice. This is what she said, summer 2022. From supply chain nightmares to food and fuel shortages to pointless wars, 
massive refugee crises, the wheels are slowly coming off the globalization train. Now, the media hate to report on this, but one of the big stories playing out over the summer is the rise of the freedom movement. So there you go. You've got freedom being equated with being anti-globalization. How does she? How does she do that kind of twisting of the whole concept of freedom? Um, you know, my view. I don't. I think you probably share this, but my view is that globalization has been one of the greatest forces over the last, you know, fifty years, and and it's because of the fact that uh, freedom has actually spread. Now, it, it actually has shrunk, in my view, in in the U.S., but freedom has actually been growing as a force around the world now. That isn't necessarily true for the last maybe five or so years. And there certainly are issues with regard to authoritarians throughout the world rearing their ugly heads. But how does how does Laura Ingraham or Fox or any of those people, how do they get away with that? Well, that's the question I think we've asked before, particularly in our podcast when we discuss the news, right? And part of it, it's just a perpetual outrage machine. Everybody, not just at Fox News, but at all the 24-hour cable news services, they need to keep you coming back. How do they keep you coming back? They keep you mad as hell. And how do they get you mad as hell? They want you to feel like the world is going to shit. (laughs) And Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson in particular, they are very good at that. How much of this does Laura Ingram actually believe? I don't know. She's been somewhat of a hypocrite in the past, but I think... She knows how to get ratings. She knows how to get money for the channel. So I I don't know how she can say all of this with a straight face and then say she's pro-freedom. But, you know, it can accuse her of being hypocritical and she can cry all the way to the bank. So, you know, I mentioned that uh, globalization has been one of the the best things, but there have been problems, right? There, There are some real issues and you mentioned them as well. Let's, let's kind of dig into some of these, but I think it's worthwhile to define what we mean. And is it even worth using the term, glo- you know, globalist? Are you a globalist, Mitch? Right, which is like a swear word in some, in some circles today. Like, <laughs> push back on Mike's globalist podcast. <laughs> Mike's globalist podcast. That's, <laughs> that's right. We're globalists here. So globalization, globalism, and globalists, or maybe are all uh, related terms. I'm, they're probably not that meaningful anymore, in one sense, because they're they're trying to push together uh, maybe unrelated concepts. I think maybe they're not unrelated, but they're trying to you know uh, package things up in a way that that fuels that fear and pushes an agenda. In my mind, um, I'm. I, and again, I'm pro-globalization. And if that means um, allowing people more freedom, uh, I think that the, that is what freedom is about, is allowing people to say, okay, can I travel more freely to some other area? Or can I trade more freely with people in other parts of the world? That always helps. I mean, this, this goes back to Adam Smith. This, this argument is, is, in one sense, really old. Uh, Adam Smith himself made his bones on basically saying, okay, here's what it means to have the wealth of nations. Here's how nations and, and then their citizens uh, prosper. Here's how they do well. And he busted a lot of myths about the protectionism of the day um, and, and showed how free trade and, in a sense, globalization of the time really was a benefit for, for any any nation and their citizens who would participate but what's the bad part of globalization uh, or the globalist part i mean it's that kind of you know should we have a one world government should we have the un be in charge of policies or should we have the u.s giving up some of its sovereignty or any country any free country giving up some of its sovereignty for the benefit of uh, less free nations, and that's part of what they're packaging in there, and and that it there's a legitimate beef with that, in my view. As you may have heard me say before, the UN should be abolished, in my view. It, it certainly shouldn't be hosted in the U.S. It's it's one of the most corrupt organizations on the face of the earth, and even if it weren't, there would be no need for it in terms of a world government, in my view. I don't know how you feel about that, Mitch. 
I don't feel as strongly about it as you do. I, I like the idea of having a conference of nations to come together. But overall, I agree that there is concern with one world government. And, and there are concerns with that. But <laughs> that's not going to come from the United Nations as it currently stands. It's a pretty ineffectual organization for the most part. Ineffectual and corrupt. Now, and when you say there should be a conference of nations, I have no problem with conferences. I'm, I go to conferences all the time. When you say conference of nations, and then you actually try to overlay it with some, some real authority, which is what they try to do, is try to say, okay, this is a governing body in some way of the world. Um, and then you, horror of all horrors, you put uh, countries like Iran or Russia um, on key governing bodies, the Security Council, the Human Rights Council. I mean, that that's a moral atrocity, and... and the, the American taxpayer, who's funding most of the UN, has every right to say, "Let's be done with this. It's a corrupt organization and should be should be done with." So let's take let's take one step back, Mike, because I want to be very specific what we mean when we talk about globalization. So we're not talking about the United Nations. What we are talking about, I found this what I thought was actually a pretty good summary um, from the International Monetary Fund. They they have a website and they try to define some of these key terms. I thought it was good. You can let me know what you think. But in my mind, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about globalization. So per the IMF, economic globalization is a historical process, the result of human innovation and technological progress. It refers to the increasing integration of economies around the world, particularly through the movement of goods, services, and capital across borders. I thought that's that's a good way to define the term. I don't know if you'd take away or add anything to that. I would definitely uh, agree with, but I think it's very much incomplete. And it doesn't really, it, it's sort of in one sense uh, reversing cause and effect there. I mean, um, globalization is pro-freedom, and freedom itself is what causes this kind of technological innovation. And I, I think sometimes various uh, people and various countries and various authorities reverse that cause and effect. I mean, they're, they're saying globalization is a historical process where you have human innovation causing freedom, and I would say it's the other way around. It's, it's, it's freedom that allows for innovation and therefore technological process and, and therefore greater accumulation of wealth, longer life expectancies, and all the things that go along with the free and, and liberal, in the good sense, economy. Um, but, th but but I agree with you. That, that's a pretty good definition as long as it has it has the addition of realizing that you know it's about human freedom in the first place, and that's the ultimate cause. A recognition of people's rights is what causes all those other good things, and that's partly what what some of these uh, fear mongers are talking about. They don't get it right either because they're it's not like they're actually advocating. It's not like Laura Ingram or her cohort are advocating for real freedom in, in the way you or I might, Mitch, but they do identify some, I think, some real issues with regard to maybe not, you know, I, I was going off on the UN uh, a couple minutes ago, but I'd even say the same thing is true of the IMF and, and other, quote, international organizations that are, that are sort of doing the same thing. And the International Monetary Fund was, I mean, wh wh how would you define the International Monetary Fund? How would you say, okay, this is its purpose. Here's what they were, uh, their mission. Here's why they, they were brought about. I mean, my understanding is that it was the same kind of thing that motivated a lot of the movement toward having, quote, international cooperation. But basically, it was a way to bilk the U.S. taxpayer to say, okay, we're going to subsidize investments that are risky in emerging markets or countries that don't really have any infrastructure or rule of law and we'll let companies take you know big risks there that we know these countries don't ever have any chance of paying back maybe we, maybe in a long shot they do but it's it's a way to, to to shift money out of middle class taxpayers hands through taxation and subsidize risk taking on the part of businesses in the US or you know, cronyism in terms of other countries. And and I think that's a, a legitimate criticism that, that people have about globalization because it wasn't that piece of it. I wouldn't call freedom when you have a sort of autonomous banking organization that gets funded through 
wealthy taxpayers, that's not what freedom is. That's not capitalism or freedom either, in my view. No, I think a lot of good stuff you just said there, Mike. And quite frankly, I think an episode on the World Bank, the Import-Export Bank, the International Monetary Fund, there's a lot to talk about there, in particular to what you just brought up. Because I think some of what those organizations have done have... They should be criticized, right? But as you've said before, a lot of these opponents of globalization like to loop and wrap all of these things together into this broad term. And I want to talk a little bit specifically. First, why globalization is good. We've danced around that topic a little bit, but I want to get to the key points for for why globalization is a good thing, in your opinion, Mike. Before that, I want to talk a little bit, too, about Laura Ingram's specific quote, because she says a lot of things that are pretty scary. She talks about food and fuel shortages, pointless wars, refugee crises. You know, these aren't things that she's blaming on the IMF or the World Bank. She's saying, this is globalization for you. Look at these horrible things coming to a country near you, because... Our leaders have sold out, and now we are all going to die. This is basically what she's saying, right? But, you know, just to push back a little bit here before we really get into why globalization is good. Food and fuel shortages, we, we did have some of that in the, in the COVID era. We've talked about this before. <laughs> a lot of this is because government came in and shut down means of production to actually make these things. But shortages, wars, refugee crises, these have existed since the dawn of civilization, before the dawn of civilization. We find massacre sites when Homo sapiens were massacring Neanderthals. I, I mean, this Laura Ingram is just so ridiculous to be pointing out just bad things and then saying this is because of globalization. And in fact, not only have these things been going on for thousands of years, but actually there's been some really good research going on that today, now, not not a perfect time to be alive, but pretty much the best time to be alive in all of human history. Absolutely. And that, and that's, and that is, in fact, due to capitalism slash globalization in the, in the good sense. You know, the, the free trade that the world has experienced for the last 50 years has been enormously beneficial to every human being on the planet in one, one sense. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have some people out there who, who are suffering. But your point is, I think, uh, is that suffering and wars and all these, all these bad things are basically the, the norm. That, is the, that has been the state of human existence with little pockets of reprieve or little pockets of sanity or little time periods where uh, civilization kind of pops up and, and people don't really understand it well enough for, to make it last. But your point is well taken. That that, that is the, the basic uh, default position to have these kinds of uh, uh, bad things going on. But I think you're right to really make sure that we drive home the point that the world is a good place now there are problems and i think that freedom and capitalism are really in jeopardy i mean in one sense we haven't had capitalism in, in any real pure sense uh, or any real meaningful sense for a very long time we have mixed economies we have mixed economies all over the world but those mixed economies were improving in many cases um, with large populations and that's why we've had you know massive growth uh, of various emerging markets economically and lots of people being taken out of poverty and that's nothing but a good thing along with uh, you know maybe, maybe you're uh, you know you're more more of an isolationist and you're someone who says well I don't really care about the the Asians who've been taken out of poverty because of having more uh, free economies over there I care more about the economy here that I deal with in the US and they've got a point I mean that person has a point but they don't realize I mean they're not giving credit to how well their lives have probably improved. And this is a hard thing for economists to measure because the only way that economists can measure things is in dollars and not necessarily quality of life or the quality of a product. You know, if you're paying for 
a quote computer, let's say you're paying $1,000 for a, a computer 10 years ago, and now you're paying $500 for that same computer. You say, okay, well, that's a good deal. And now it's half off. But that doesn't even recognize the fact that the $500 computer is probably 20 times better as a tool yeah. than the uh, original $1,000 computer. So you, it's difficult to measure how well people's lives have been, have gotten. But they don't necessarily see that. They don't necessarily sense that. And and it's important for uh, political leaders and economic commentators to be able to say, okay, here's what's going on. Here's why things have gotten better and here are the challenges. And to identify the challenges properly because it, in almost all cases, the challenges, the problems, the, the reasons why it hasn't even gotten even better than it should have or than it has is because of government intrusion and the introduction of force into people's lives, which is, you know, is on the march. And, and uh, you know, that's on the march, the authoritarian instinct or I shouldn't say instinct, but the authoritarian um, people's propensity to say, yeah, let's let's gang up and and use force to get our way upon some other part of the population is a growing phenomenon right now. And that's what we should be fighting. Yeah, I agree, Mike. And I think ultimately you made a lot of good points in, in describing the point I was making. And I think ultimately for me, what frustrates me is that Laura Ingram is pointing out things that have been part of the human condition forever and then decrying freedom, which is the thing that has actually help to alleviate those evils that she points out. So she's got the whole thing just ass backwards, I think. I but, agree. you know, enough about Laura Ingram. I, I want to talk about globalization itself now, Mike. And the reason why I think it's just so important to talk about why it's good, you know, as all of us human beings, our lives are so short. We, unfortunately, we, we don't have perspective. You know, even 200 years ago, when I could be with cholera on the Oregon Trail dying, that, that's pretty much unheard of today. But, you know, our experience is measured in years, maybe a few decades. And so we don't really understand, I think, or truly appreciate all the goodness that has come out of what we're calling this globalization. So why is globalization good, Mike? And, and why isn't it just you know, I, I think a lot of people would say, well, globalization is people coming up from south of the border and taking my job. How's that good for me? Yeah, what we've said already, and we should expand upon that, globalization just means that there is the ability to have more freedom, personal, individual freedom, to be able to do what you want with your life and trade with who you want to. And that means it's on a global scale now, um, where you are able to literally buy things from people you have no concept of what how they live or where they're at um, you're trading with people who are a world away in one sense they're across the globe and there's because of the division of labor which just means which you know when you have a free economy and an advancing economy people are allowed to specialize and are able to uh, decide what they want to do and employers are able to, to allow for much more specialization in terms of the jobs that people do. That means you can have raw materials and individual laborers and management all in different places. And, and because of technology, it's a, it's a virtuous cycle that allows for that kind of specialization. Now, it does have some challenges because, as we saw in the supply chain crisis uh, during COVID, you had supplies of important materials being produced as they should be in a free economy, as they should be in different parts of the world that maybe those parts of the world became less stable uh, or maybe became more uh, influenced by different politics. And that, that does create weaknesses in the, ch in the supply chain, so to speak. And many companies are learning that the hard way. They're starting to say, well, maybe I should diversify my, my supply chain. Maybe, maybe because I was only focused on the, the good and cheap labor I could have in under country X, I wasn't thinking about, well, what happens if that country X uh, goes to war or that country X uh, has a, ends up having a different kind of view on, the, on their national interests, and then I'm holding the bag. I'm, I'm now dependent upon that country there are some challenges if you don't have freedom that continues to expand across the globe. But 
the the benefits of globalization outweigh that and that that train of free trade um, where you have lots of people who want to continue to improve their lives only benefits those uh, who are trading with them across the globe and and so there's so many examples that we could go into more deeply with regard to why that freedom cause and allowing people to trade with each other and travel freely and and exchange culturally uh, is a good thing in terms of not only material benefits but spiritual benefits as well life expectancy all those things have improved greatly now there is there is some you know, again there is some challenges to that because of the supply chain issues but i think most of the the benefits have been well documented by economists well that all sounds nice and good mike but right in the past when i was competing for a job i was just competing against some people in the same city maybe in the same state now when i'm competing for a job i might be competing with people from across the world so how's that fair well, no one, no one ever said it was fair. What we're saying is it's good because the competition is two ways. And so you not only have more people who are competing against you for the jobs, but you also have more employers who want maybe potentially the skills and, and labor that you're offering. And I shouldn't say just skills and labor. It's more broad than that. They, they may want the whole package that you're offering. Um, Americans have more opportunities than they ever have. They don't have them in the same ways, and that's one of the challenges. And this is where, uh, you know, I hate to go back to Laura or, or maybe who she's the mouthpiece for, but people like Trump are, are looking at a concrete level of saying, you know, can you do, can we have this manufacturing job that you thought you had a life entitlement to? Um, can I go back to that old way? And that's just not real. Uh, the world does change and people need to adapt. And uh, most Americans have, have adapted to the new world very well. So many of the businesses out there um, relocated manufacturing plants, which, is, uh, you know, which are um, driven by labor costs and capital improvements. They've, they've relocated many of those plants to countries that had lower priced labor, whether it was in China or other Asian countries certainly Mexico, and that was in their interest to do so. But they were able to bring down the prices. I mean, a good example is automobiles or, or certainly uh, all the technology that we have at our disposal now. Much of that is either uh, the raw materials come from or they're manufactured or they're designed. Oftentimes they're de designed in the U.S., but they're, they're, um, you know, they're a product that is put together in many different places and for a much cheaper cost. And that's oftentimes a multiple of what someone might have lost in terms of their, their uh, ability to compete for a specific manufacturing job. But where's your patriotism, Mike? We want things to be made here in the USA, the greatest country in the world. And when you outsource these jobs, you are outsourcing these jobs from good, God-fearing, tax-paying Americans. Well, our country is not outsourcing anything. It's individuals and they're looking out for their interests uh, and companies, corporations, who are saying we can be more profitable by, by uh, manufacturing some things overseas and selling them to people from overseas or selling them to Americans. There's no right for someone to have a job in the first place. There's no right for someone to have I mean, that has to be provided by someone. That has to be provided for, by a willing employer, a willing trader, so to speak. Um, and that's what people don't understand is that America got to this great place by enshrining these principles of individual freedom and the ability to make choices on your own life versus having protectionism. I realize that people want to go back. And you know, there's names, there are names for this, this idea. In one extreme sense, it's a nationalist impulse. People saying, you know, we want to... We want to look out for patriotism. Patriotism means, you know, having things manufactured in the U.S. So people have this strange and perverted sense of what patriotism means. In my view, patriotism means, as an American, I have adopted the ideas, the fundamental ideas that allow for freedom, and realize that those ideas of freedom are what, what are the cause of our prosperity in the first place. 
versus the idea of being loyal to a piece of ground or a certain or a certain geographic area, no matter what, no matter what the people or culture is like. And again, there, there's these sort of phrases or iterations of what we mean by uh, patriotism that are ugly and have nothing to do with actually being patriotic. The worst case being nationalism, where you're just so focused on the nation state and being loyal to that collective versus the actual ideas that they stand for. You know, in some of the other incarnations of this, it means, or people are using phrases like, you know, common good conservatism or, you know, the traditionalism of the past. And people are waxing for that, you know, old 1950s nostalgic idea, not realizing that the people from the 1950s are much are much happier. I mean, would be much happier with the kind of uh, lifestyle that we have and culture that we have today. So, are you saying, Mike, that to be patriotic, that doesn't mean that you're obsessed with creating goods and services within an artificially defined series of borders, but to be patriotic is to actually appreciate and take advantage of the ideals, the idea of America, of being able to exercise and protect individual rights. Yeah, that's absolutely what I'm saying. And, and the, that's what I mean by American exceptionalism. I mean, people use that term. Sometimes people are fearful of that term. I mean, I know Obama was sort of fearful of that team or denigrated the term American exceptionalism, was wanting to say, hey, we're no better than any other country. And and that's not good either. I mean, that, that that's a bad take on patriotism or a bad take on what it means to be an American. But just as... The right who says, you know, America, love her or leave it, or or I'm all about the the nation state, and if you don't if you don't uh, salute the flag, you're being uh, unpatriotic. The thing that makes America exceptional is its ideology, not its borders, not its not necessarily the race or or gender or any other attribute of the individuals there that are accidental. What makes America exceptional? is the ideology, the ideas, the fundamental ideas that have made it different than all other countries uh, from human history. And that, that idea is that an individual matters and the individual gets to choose. The individual gets to make choices about their own life, where they work, where they live, who they decide to sleep with, who they decide to marry, whether to have kids or not. All those, those questions are open in a liberal society, a, a free society. And, and here I always have to make the sort of editorial comment, when I use the term liberal, liberalism, I'm most often talking about in the classical sense of liberalism, freedom, freedom focus, the, the allow the allowing the individual to decide what to do with their life themselves, not the you know American idea of uh, left-wing progressivism. That's not what I mean by liberalism in most cases. And Mike, you brought up a great point. And that brings me to the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which, you know, why do we have a stronger pushback against globalization now? And one of the things we just spoke about was artificially created borders, right? Which I don't think should be confused with the idea of no borders, but that is a argument against globalization that, you know, our country's full. We, we can't take any more immigrants or we need to have a limit because immigrants are taking jobs or because of our social safety nets that we have in place, we just simply can't absorb any more people. So we need to make sure that we have these strong borders and sometimes physical walls to keep people out. And I think that's one of the, the arguments against globalization. But I wanted to ask you, Mike, why do you think we have so much pushback today? Well, you you said a lot there, and you know, I, I don't think it's quite quite correct to say artificial borders, although, I mean, in one sense, you're right, uh, but I think that takes our eye off the ball with regard to globalization and, and these, these challenges to globalization. So borders are one thing, but when people are talking about our country being full, our, like there's too many people here, how are they making that decision? And And... Is there any real evidence of that? I mean, I'm someone who likes both having lots of space, you know, being able to go out on a farm or a ranch or out in the woods somewhere and not see a person uh, for days. And then I like to be in a very urban environment. I know most people aren't kind of bifurcated that way like I am. Most people have a preference. They either want to be away from people 
or they can't stand themselves if they're out and <laughs> out by themselves. You know, they they, yeah. they need to have that Manhattan feeling, or maybe even downtown Denver feeling, or or at least the suburbs of Denver where they're they're around people. I like both myself, but the facts are there. Anybody who does, you know, take a trip out into America realizes how much empty space we have. In fact, there's a statistic that I, a long time ago, I uh, did some math and, and verified, uh, but I think this will hit most people. It, if you took every human being on the face of the planet, not just in the U.S., but every human being on the face of the planet, and you put them all into the state of Texas, would that be pretty crowded? Yeah, I've heard the statistics somewhere else. Everybody <laughs> would have like a, what is it, like a square mile or something? No, no, like no, no. It wouldn't be. It, it would be actually pretty dense. It, it, everyone would live like they live in Manhattan. If you had every person on the planet stuffed into the state of Texas, then it would be like the whole state of Texas would be like Manhattan. Or, and, and Manhattan itself is not the most dense place on earth. I mean, it's pretty dense. I, mean, I think Tokyo's got it beat. Yeah, Tokyo, Mexico City. There's a number of places that have, you know, they're piled on top of each other even more than, than uh, Manhattan. But the point is that there are plenty of people around the world, and certainly the people in Manhattan want to be there. I mean, they can freely choose to move. Um, there are plenty of people who live in dense places who think, great, that'd be no problem. I could live there. The rest of the earth would be one big garden or one big national park or global park, globalist park or something. Um, and it's not that I'm advocating for that. Um, my point is that would not be a crowded place by some people's standards. Now, for those of us who like to be out in the woods and don't want to see someone for a days at a time, living in that state of Texas that we're crammed with every person on earth would feel like Manhattan and be too crowded. But the earth does not have too many people, and America does not have too many people by my standards. We have too few people, actually. We, I actually agree with that. We have too few people, too few people who are willing to work and too few people willing to... Uh, use these ideas that we're talking about. And, and in one sense, that's not even true because I'm not optimistic. I actually think that more and more people, if you take a look at the, the Earth's population, more and more people are getting this idea of, you know, wait, I, I have all this opportunity and I can trade with other people and I can make my world a better place. But there are definitely people out there who are like, no, I don't want to live. I don't want to live in a dense world like that. And I don't, I, I don't want my country, America, to be crowded with a bunch of foreigners there there are people who feel that way but they don't have any right to say you know i'm an american keep out i mean you have a right to your own property you don't have a right to you don't have a right to your country in the sense of saying this is my dirt and you can't come here people have a right to move now that brings me to the second point you made about the welfare system and this is why i think the traditionalists the nationalists, the anti-globalists, the, I hate to say it, many in the Republican Party, many people on the, quote, right. Why do you hate to say it? Well, because I guess maybe it's because I think that the the right itself, the conservatives, the people on the right, um, have for most of my life given more and better sounding, to me at least, lip service toward the ideas, the ideas of America, the ideals of the founding father, the ideas of freedom. Right. So they've been on the, the good team for, for, for most of my life. Now, I, I, I haven't been a Republican for a long time, so don't get me wrong. But I hate to say it because the left, uh, and you could put many Democrats in this, in this category, uh, I think uh, have been virtual absolute sellouts with regard to any form of freedom. The Republicans have too. They just made better sounds. But it's so cynical and so uh, defeatist, in my view, to say we got to keep these people out because we have this welfare state. I mean, I often say we don't have an immigration problem at all. What we have is a welfare state problem. And most conservatives, most people on the right will, will concede that. But they have given up. They basically say... We can't do anything about that. That's well, right. I've and maybe I don't it. want to in the first place. And once well, we start to define what a welfare state means, they're right. like, well, wait, hands off my, you know. Well, I paid into social security. I paid into blank my whole life. Right. I get that back. Right. And I've even been surprised 10 years ago, you know, Obamacare was a huge rallying cry for conservatives. 
But even now, the narrative has changed to, I don't even think we're going to repeal and replace it. Now now it is um, reform Obamacare. Yeah, that ship sailed. And unfortunately, it ship, uh, the ship sailed under, under Trump. I mean, uh, he was elected by people who were concerned about many of the policies of Obama, and he was elected to repeal and replace. And he, in fact, had an opportunity to. Mm-hmm. You know, having had both the House and the Senate for a, for some time period, and they made absolutely no effort to to repeal or replace Obamacare in any real sense. Um, and we could go on about the Supreme Court uh, and their role in that, but but there was no real effort. And most people on the right don't understand these ideals of freedom, and they're threatened by them in the first place. They they think you know that the fabric of America would go away if we if we uh, repealed and replaced Obamacare or Medicare or Social Security and don't realize that that is all part of the socialist welfare state that we have now. Now, again, these are radical ideas that we're talking about because most people, you know, have grown up under this program. You know, socialized medicine, socialized retirement, socialized education, having the, the state be a major player in all these industries has been sort of the norm. And if you grow up under that system, but you also have and attach it to, hey, America, you know, this is a great place. And you attach it that way, then you don't necessarily see the the causal relationship between the freedom that we once had and the wealth that it produced and the ability to have these kinds of programs, but having a twilight out there saying we can't do this anymore, we can't afford them, and it's not moral in the first place. And by the way, I mean, I know oftentimes I just play devil's advocate with you, Mike, but thank God for immigrants, because if you do like Social Security and these social welfare programs, it is through immigration that is the only feasible way any form of those social welfare programs will remain viable. Otherwise, America's going to have a shrinking population, and we won't be able to afford Social Security anymore. So... Thank God for immigration. Thank God for immigration. Although, again, that's that's on the practical level. You're absolutely right. That if you just do the math, if you actually say, let's just take a hard, cold look at this, how is this thing sustainable? Well, it's not. But once again, we want to make sure we're adding the more important element uh, that, that it's a violation of people's rights in the first place. The, to say the principle. The principle. That's yes. exactly I right. I don't mean to be unprincipled, <laughs> but I'm just saying if we can't convince you on the social welfare program's at least we could convince you on immigration. Absolutely. Let's, but let's get back to this globalization as it relates to borders and immigration. I mean, my point is it's very cynical and defeatist to say um, we have to stop people coming across the border because we can't do anything about our welfare state. I mean, that's, that's just thrown in the towel. Um, what we should be, I mean, in one sense, you're right. We should be saying, no, we welcome you because we need you to keep our welfare state going. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, the more principled a point is to say globalization, liberalization, aka both of them meaning more capitalism, more freedom, more freedom for individuals to trade with who they want to and not have governments or government telling them how to live their lives means that we end up having better results across the board. Again, wherever it's been tried, to whatever degree it's been tried, Freedom Works. There's a uh, an organization called Freedom Works, and they're more on the right, but they they have documented, proven, and decided to adopt that phrase because of the practical nature of it. And anybody who watches any part of our government work and is honest about it, I, I would say, has to say to themselves, "Yeah, our intent was this. Here, you know, we wanted to have uh, less drug addicts or whatever it is. We wanted to have be- a better educated populace. We wanted to have." Less expensive health care. <laughs> this is Obama, right? Yeah. Every single one of those, if they say to themselves, well, did that happen? Did we get the result that we were lo- looking for? Well, we won the war on drugs years ago. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> if you're honest, you have to admit it doesn't work. And the only thing that really does work is allowing for people to thrive under a free system, obviously with the rule of law, with actually having... Um, a government that does protect rights, protects property rights, protects individual rights, protects the rights of the individual and and the organizations that they they're uh, part of. Um, but that means you have to have a whole theory and understanding of rights 
in the first place? What rights mean? And that, that's a crucial question for people who, who are advocating for globalization and liberalization and freedom. They've got to do a better job of making the argument, this is what we mean by rights in the first place. This is what, you know, if a globalist says, what I mean by rights is the right to health care or the right to, uh, you know, a dignified retirement, then they're actually defeating their, their part of the problem in the first place because they don't understand that you can't have rights to things that way. You can only have rights to actions and to the fruits of those actions. So, Mike, you know how I love to, at the end of our episodes, I like to try to bring it back to some practical advice you can give us. And I think for a lot of people today looking at the state of the world, they might say, well, what you've spoken about, I agree with it. Let's have free trade amongst all nations, but it looks like we might be on the precipice of another kind of Cold War situation. You have these authoritarian governments, China, Russia, others banding together, potentially trying to get away from a dollar-backed financial system, you know, essentially disrupting the world order that we have had. So it seems extremely unlikely that we're going to be able to have free trade like we have in the past with some of these authoritarian governments because they're going to start forming blocks again like we had the East and the West block. And in a world like that, Mike, does it still make sense to be a an advocate for globalization when you know maybe half the globe is closed off to you? Well, half the globe being closed off is an overstatement. I think that, you know, if you think about, I mean, you, you brought up two examples and they, they should be separated. I mean, maybe they're making some, some alliances, although I think those alliances are strained at best uh, with this whole fiasco in, in Ukraine. But, but when you talk about the two, those two, you know, powerhouses or semi-powerhouses of China and Russia, I mean, Russia is not a powerhouse, and it's not an economic uh, threat in any way whatsoever. They don't really make anything. They have some raw materials, and they have reinstituted uh, a, an authoritarian regime. You know, uh, call it the culture, call it uh, Putin's. You know, whatever allowed him to gain the power that he did. But Russia is not a threat to to anyone economically. And that's partly why they are, are, have gone to war. And this is traditionally what happens is countries that don't have freedom shrink in terms of their ability to produce and be an e economically viable uh, option for their citizens. And so they, they need to, con they need to, to conquer other countries. Um, and that's what we're seeing with Putin in Russia. China, on the other hand, uh, did buy into much of the globalization freedom argument uh, they saw the the need to liberalize uh, many of their policies, and they reaped the benefits of that. And so just as America was turning to more of a statist authoritarian regime itself, uh, and that may be overstating it, but, but certainly more cronyist, more collectivist, less individual rights, much more regulatory uh, environment after the you know, after the Reagan years, and, and Reagan was, you know, just a, a, a short respite from the trend we were on in the first place. And even the budget expanded under Reagan. Absolutely. I mean, he was no free marketeer. On a relative basis was what he and his generation did in terms of trying to free things up a little bit. That was a positive and then had enormously good consequences. But it wasn't like they really reinstituted capitalism on a policy basis and certainly didn't on an ideological basis. So... And, but after that, America, you know, took a turn to the left uh, under the Bushes, under Obama. Um, we have been expanding the state and becoming less free in America. You know, any freedom index that you look at, if you look at the trend line, America has become less free. All the while, some of these other countries, including China being the biggest example, but India as well, were liberalizing and we're reaping the benefits of that economically. And so were we. We were being able to trade with not the Chinese government, but with Chinese companies, Chinese individuals who were manufacturing and American companies who were basing some of their operations in China. Uh, and we benefited enormously from that liberalization. So just as we were making a turn toward the more collectivist end, China and India and many parts of the emerging markets were turning toward more. You could have thrown Russia into that with the breakup of the Soviet Union, but they made, and again, I don't know if it's really cultural or why, but that 
that country certainly made several horrible decisions in the restructuring of their economy once the Soviet Union was was no more. Uh, you know, it, it became more of a kleptocracy or a thug or mafia type of a, you know, the, the, it was, you know, meet the, the new boss, same as the old boss. You know, the guys who were in charge of the Soviet Union, so to speak, became the, quote, entrepreneurs and the uh, owners of capital uh, versus actually having a, a rule of law regime. But this is all to say that, you know, when you talk about a new Cold War, you know, the pandemic and this, this movement toward protectionism and protecting ourselves is something that's happening right now. The, the, you know, when you talk about my advice, Americans should be, you know, going into the, the future with eyes wide open about what is the cause of prosperity. And again, I can pound the table a hundred times. The cause of prosperity is freedom, protecting individual rights. Now, the question is, what about our foreign policy and what about the threats that China has become? China is actually now reversing itself. Be going, they're going back to collectivism and authoritarianism, and they're making noises about trying to to really be a powerhouse in the world. But if you have any confidence, and this is the this is the thing, is the the conservatives, the the traditionalists, have no real understanding of the causes of prosperity, of freedom, and therefore they don't have confidence in it. And so they think that authority, that authoritarianism of China, is really what makes it strong. But they don't really realize that. China is becoming weaker and weaker right now, not stronger because they're becoming less free and their economy is going to be much less dynamic. And they certainly are a potential threat economically. And if they take the same tack that Russia does, you know, Russia did with Ukraine, if they take the same tack and uh, try to assert themselves in Taiwan, that's a major problem Uh, because the world economy, the globalized world economy that we've uh, become come to know, and in you and my cases, come to know and love because of the benefits that it's provided, is very dependent upon technology. And uh, we, are in a, we are in a situation right now where the Taiwan, Taiwanese companies and the companies who do, do business and are there are very much uh, technologically crucial uh, for most of the world's prosperity right now. And so that's why the whole issue with Taiwan is a major, major problem. And I'm not sure what to do. With it. <laughs> the, the, the advice I would have, the, the, my statement would be that um, Americans should be, like I said, eyes wide open with regard to that threat in, in China, but still realizing that the cause of prosperity, the cause of human flourishing is freedom with the rule of law, a rights protecting regime that, you know, does just that, allows you freedom and protects your rights. And that's what we need to be uh, turning toward in America. Not, we don't need to be copying these authoritarian thugs. That's not going to help us. That's going to make our lives more miserable in the short term and less prosperous in the long term. Well, I thank you for that, Mike. And I, I look forward to just this evening getting in my car with parts manufactured over the entire globe so that I could safely, efficiently, and more cheaply get from point A to point B. Absolutely. You should be, you should be advocating for that kind of a program, that kind of a system that actually does protect those individual rights, and you will thrive. And you'll not only survive, but you'll thrive under it. And um, we want to thank you for listening to our podcast. This is Michael Williams and Mitch Whitus for the Defenders of Capitalism Project. Hopefully you've enjoyed this. Let us know if you have questions. If you have other ideas, please recommend the podcast to other people. This is the Defenders of Capitalism Project. I'm signing off now. Thank you for listening.